Matthew chapter 20. In our chronological study of the Lord Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, we are at the point where he was just a matter of days from entering into his final week of life, that week that his life was really all about, the week of his great display of his passion for the lost souls of all mankind, the week where he would die in our place as the once-for-all Passover Lamb of God. So he was en route going south, and he is somewhere, when we compile all four Gospels together, we know that he is somewhere at this point in time between Galilee and Jericho. He is traveling with his disciples and a multitude of of Passover pilgrims, and they are on their way to the holy city where he will enter for the last time. But uh, somewhere between the border of Galilee and the city of Jericho. You don't know about Jericho yet, but in a few weeks we will learn about some things that happen in Jericho. So with that little introduction, to get you back to where we are chronologically, let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together this morning. Okay, if you'd bow with me. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to once again assemble together for the sole purpose of getting to know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, better, so that we might love him more and serve him more. Father, we know that one thing is needful, and Mary is the one who gives us the example of having chosen that good part. And I thank you for women, Lord, who are willing to choose that good part and sit at your feet to learn more about you. After all, Father, it is just our reasonable service to to study about you and to serve you. And we know we are all unprofitable servants and that it is... Whatever we do is just our duty to do. We owe everything to your amazing grace. We thank you for this lesson on grace. Teach us through your Holy Spirit, for we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our last lesson, which was entitled The Rich Poor Men, and that, by the way, was lesson number 114 in your books. And if you want to open up to, book, to lesson number 115, that's where we'll be today. Although I would rather you just try to listen to me instead of trying to follow along and see where I am. But lesson 114, entitled The Rich Poor Men, dealt with the proverbial expression about the impossibility of a camel getting through what? The eye of a needle. And how the Lord put the death sentence on any person's hope in wealth gaining him a place in heaven. He also put the death sentence on any kind of a works-related righteousness to attain heaven. And his exceedingly amazed men, if you look at chapter 19, verse 25, it tells us they were amazed um, after hearing him say that it was impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. They had asked him, who then can be saved? That was in verse 25, to which he responded with men, this is impossible. What was he saying? He was saying with men, what is impossible? Entering into the kingdom of God with men, salvation. They said they had asked who then can be saved. And he said, with men, salvation is impossible. Ooh, aren't you glad that he then continued his sentence and said, but with God, all things are possible. God can do that which man cannot do. And aren't you glad for that truth? God can do what we can't do. He could raise little Luke. Right now, he could raise him and make him perfectly fine and healthy. If he wants, all things are possible with God. He can get a, if he wants to, he could get a camel, humps and all, through the eye of a needle. And uh, he can save anyone. He can save absolutely anyone who is merely willing to accept his free gift of salvation. And that is the very best news that you will ever hear on planet Earth that God can give his salvation to anyone who is just willing to accept his free gift, made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. Well, after then giving the disciples a special promise that awaited them at the time of the regeneration, which we said was the millennial kingdom, when the Son of Man would return to earth to sit on his throne of glory, that was in Verse 28 of Matthew 19, and after promising all who were willing to forsake everything in order to follow him, that they would be richly compensated a hundredfold, the Lord had said in verse 30 of that chapter, 
But many that are first shall be what? Last. Many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. In other words, many who in the eyes of the world are first in this world, such as the rich young ruler, and many who in their own self-appraisal, their own evaluation of themselves, see themselves as being first, many, not all, but many of those will be last in the eyes of the Lord. And uh, there is a warning of this truth for the believer as well, because we see that after saying that in verse 30, look at Matthew 19, 30, but many that are first shall be last and last shall be first. Immediately after saying that, now you know the chapter breaks are not inspired. Men put the chapter breaks in there for our convenience so that I could say to you this morning, open up to Matthew chapter 20 and you wouldn't have a difficult time finding it. Otherwise, can you imagine how difficult it would be without chapter, um, you know, with all the, without all the addresses. But uh, the Lord just went right on speaking after saying that, and he began to speak the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which he spoke to his own men. And that is going to be, that parable is going to be the sole topic of our, of our lesson this morning. But I wanted you to notice that the parable also ends with a repetition of that same statement that preceded the parable. He had just said that many that will be first shall be last, last shall be first. And then look at verse 16. Take a sneak preview at verse 16 that ends the parable. The Lord again says the last shall be first and the first last. So because these state this same statement, basically, it's worded a little bit different, but because it bookends the parable, The statement comes before the parable and after the parable. It doesn't really take a rocket scientist. It doesn't really take a whole lot of deep studying to realize that the parable in between probably has something to do with the first being last and the last being first. Wouldn't you all agree? And it does. It does. And um, so that's what we're going to be studying about this morning. Why the first would be last and the last would be first. Why he said that, etc. Now, events in the lives of the apostles themselves, as we're going to see very shortly, would soon prove that they really needed the Lord's forewarning about this uh, topic. Because if you look at verses, I'll read the parable in a minute, but if you look at verses 20, uh, 21 in this same chapter, shortly following that parable, what do we see happens? Ah. <sighs> James and John, the two, they're two brothers, are actually cousins of Jesus. Send their mother to Jesus. Can you just imagine this? Yeah, those of you who have sons can probably imagine this. <laughs> they send their mother to Jesus to ask him for the uppermost seats in the kingdom. Now, they had just received they had just heard the lord give them that unique promise that in the regeneration they the apostles would apostles would have that special privilege of sitting on 12 thrones and judging over the 12 tribes of israel so they get to thinking hmm well since we're related maybe just maybe we can have the uppermost seats maybe we can have the seat on his right hand and on his left hand but instead of wanting to ask him directly they send mama you know to do the interceding for them can you imagine? So, you know, if they had a problem with high-mindedness and wanting to be the first before they had heard about the promise that they'd sit on 12 thrones, we see that they really have a problem about this afterwards. And can you imagine this? On the very night of the Lord's arrest, when they're all together in the upper room, do you know what those guys are arguing about? This just shows us that they were just humans like you and me. (laughs) They were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And that's why the Lord gave them the example of, you know, taking off his robe and girding himself with a towel and getting down and washing their feet. But so we find that they needed to be reminded about um, the fact that many who see themselves as first will be last in God's eyes. They needed to to understand that everything Everything that they have and would ever receive was all because of God's goodness and God's grace. They might suppose that they deserved more than others, as did the nation of Israel suppose that she deserved more because she was called by God first to serve him. 
But God dispenses his grace sovereignly. And God dispenses his grace impartially, doesn't he? I mean, he's no respecter of persons. He, he dispenses his grace to everyone who simply is willing to heed the call to come to him and to serve him. God's grace is, look at the title for our lesson. God's grace is the great equalizer. The title of our lesson is Grace, the Great Equalizer. His grace is the equalizer that not only makes possible the removal of sin on all men who are willing to accept his free gift of salvation, but also makes every believer equally acceptable to him. Thus, apostles don't take pride in being called first and suppose, therefore, that you are better. Thus, Israel, don't take pride that because you were called first before the, the Gentiles, before the church, and therefore suppose that you are better. And thus, anyone, anyone at all, who has been in Christian service for perhaps decades, don't suppose that you are better than those who are called to Christ perhaps late in their lives. Don't suppose that your position or that your prolonged service renders you any better status in the eyes of God because the fact is that many who think they're first or are first in this world will be last. I mean, when we get to heaven, we're going to have a lot of surprises. Those who are seen as first are going to be people we never, ever heard of. And some of the very famous ones... I'm talking about Christians because nobody will be there besides Christians. Some of the famous ones will be last, you know, but God, God's the one in control. Now, the subject of the kingdom of heaven has been the subject or the focus of the Lord's teaching ever since he and his men left Bethany after he had raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And we see that he continues this same topic, focus about the kingdom of heaven in the parable. Because in the very first sentence, look at chapter 20, verse 1. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder. Now, as we will find as we go through this parable, the householder here, who is compared to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like unto the householder. He has many names. We um, also hear him called the uh, Lord of the vineyard in this parable. He is called the good man of the house. We know he is a landowner. But he symbolizes, who do you think? He symbolizes God. The landowner, the household. I mean, you know, if he's, if heaven, he, kingdom of heaven is like unto this man, he has to be God. Because the kingdom of heaven is perfect, right? And it can't be to compared to anyone who isn't perfect. So the only one who is perfect would be God. So the, the landowner symbolizes God. You could say Christ too if you want, either one. Now the kingdom of heaven could be compared to no one as I just said, other than the Lord himself. The, so the parable is about the goodness and the righteousness and the sovereignty and, of course, the grace of God Almighty. And some have therefore suggested that this parable could also be called the parable of the good employer, in addition to being called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, the parable of the good employer, because it certainly is about the good employer, God. So with all of this in mind, what I want to do this morning is, first of all, we are going to read through the parable, then we're going to discuss the parable itself, and what it basically is saying, and then you kind of have to put on your thinking caps because then we're going to have to look at all the various interpretations of this parable. And I thought, oh me, oh my, here we are starting out a new year with a difficult parable. I didn't realize that it was so difficult until I started looking at all the different interpretations that different commentators have on it. And um, so we'll have to think a little bit when we get to the interpretation part of the parable. You don't mind that, right? Your New Year's resolution was that this year you'll put on your thinking cap. <laughs> well, I don't make resolutions anymore because I never keep them. So, all right, let's look at verses 20, I mean, verses 1 to 16 of Matthew 20, where the Lord just continued teaching his men and said, For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, which is a denarius, he sent them into his vineyard. And when he, when he, 
and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. And he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here all the day idle? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So when even, which would be evening, six o'clock p.m. roughly, so when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired about the 11th hour, that's the ones who were hired last at around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. They'd worked 12 hours that day. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour. And thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and heat of the day? But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst not thou agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Or is thy eye Jealous, envious, because I am good. And here we go. Here's that statement again. So the last shall be first and the first last. For many be called, but few chosen. It was a common practice for landowners back in the days of Christ in Israel to go to their nearby town or village or city marketplaces, which in Greek is agora. They'd go to the city center, the agora, the marketplace, in order to hire temporary day laborers to assist their regular full-time servants in the fields or vineyards at particularly busy times of the year when they need more, needed more laborers out in their field or vineyard. Now, in Israel, grapes, this, this parable is about a vineyard, not a field, it's about a vineyard. And in Israel, grapes ripen in late September a time of year that is immediately followed by the heavy rains of early October. So getting the harvest of the grapes in before the rains hit is very important because the, the heavy rains can utterly destroy the grapes. So there is a frantic rage against time. So that's why the landowner, you know, he needed to get the grapes in and he went back to the marketplace many times to get more laborers because he just, there was an urgency about getting the harvest in before the rains came, which, you know, this whole parable is symbolic. So that kind of speaks about the urgency of doing the Lord's work. You know, we don't know when the, when the Lord may return. There's always an urge, a sense of urgency in doing the Lord's work. So extra laborers... Um, are important at such a time, even if they could only give one hour of time to the work. Now, the laborers in this in this particular parable were um, comparable to what we call migrant workers today. And it was, and it still is in parts of the world today, the practice for these men to go to the marketplace to find employment day by day. They had absolutely, they were poor men. They had absolutely no guarantee of employment beyond the work of each day. And because they were poor, the Lord God had made specific commandments regarding these type of workers in the Mosaic Law. To Israel, for example, you can look in Deuteronomy 24:15 and, and Leviticus 19:13. He had told Israel that they were not to defraud such laborers. Uh, they were to receive a decent and fair wage for their work. And another thing that the law said was that they specifically had to be paid at the end of each workday, because um, 
they were poor and they needed the wage from each day in order to go and buy bread to feed themselves and their family. So they were to be paid before the sun went down. Now, the landowner of the Lord's parable was a very generous, an extremely generous employer because we find, first of all, that, of course, this would be typical. He went out early in the morning. He probably went out about 5.30 in the morning and hired a first set of laborers. And he agreed with them. He's probably the one that offered this wage. He offered them a wage of a penny for their day's work. Now, unfortunately, our concept of a penny makes him sound like he was a real cheapskate, doesn't it? I don't think I would work from 6 in the morning to 6 at night for a penny. (laughs) I know I wouldn't. (laughs) Not for a penny the way we think of a penny. But the Greek word for penny here is denarius. And it was a very, very good wage for such a day laborer, a migrant type of worker, such as these men were. In fact, it was the pay for a Roman soldier, a day's wage for a Roman soldier. So it, it was an extremely generous wage for men who would generally get far less for a whole day's wage. So this first group readily agreed. You notice the word agreed in verse 2? They readily agreed with the landowner to work for him for the denarius, and he sent them out into his vineyard. Now, the Jewish workday, you know, Jewish day goes from sunrise to sunset. So a Jewish day begins at 6 in the morning and ends at 6 at night, compared to, you know, our, our day begins at, what, 12.01? Uh, But their day begins at six. So the first hour would be six in the morning. You know, he probably hired them at 530. And by the time they got to the vineyard, it was six in the morning. And uh, the Jews divide their days into 12 parts. They also divide their nights into 12 parts. So I guess we do too, don't we? But they just start at a different point. Well, we're told in verse 3 that the landowner returned to the marketplace at approximately the third hour. Now, if the first hour was six in the morning, ladies, what time was the third hour? Very good. (laughs) The nine o'clock. He went back at nine o'clock to the Agora to look for more laborers for his vineyard, and he saw others standing idle there, which again gives us a misconception. We think of idle, oh, they're just idle, you know, sitting around playing chess or something. But idle meant doesn't mean that they were lazy, because if they were lazy, they wouldn't have been in the marketplace. They were seeking employment. All it means is that they were They hadn't been hired yet for the day's work. Maybe they weren't there at 5.30 in the morning. Maybe they had to travel from a further distance. I don't know. But anyway, he saw them there. And um, the thing to notice is that the second time of hiring, the landowner did not state to them any particular wage. He merely told them, go ye also into the vineyard and whatsoever is right, I will give you. That's in verse 4. And eager to have work... And trusting in the man's word, you know, trusting that he would indeed pay them whatsoever was right, the men went to work in the vineyard. Wasn't it nice that a man could be trusted for his word back in those days? Well, as the Lord continued with the parable in verse 5, he told of the landowner returning again to the marketplace at about the sixth hour, which would be what time? Noon. And the ninth hour which would be three. You're doing really well, really well would be. So he went back at 12 o'clock noon, and then he returned again at three o'clock in order to hire yet more laborers to work in his vineyard. Now, the words of verse five, which tell us that he did likewise, means that he again simply told the men that he would pay them whatsoever was right, and they trusted his work, and uh, they went out to the field to the vineyard to work and they were probably delighted to have any work at all that day for the six and the three hours remaining of the day well the landowner even returned to the marketplace one last time and it was at the 11th hour which would be five o'clock p.m. to hire more laborers for his vineyard even though there was just one hour of work left from five to six that's all that was left and to these 11th hour laborers The householder asked a question. He said, he asked, why stand ye here all the day idle? To which they responded, important, because no man hath hired us. 
there is a significant reason for the conversation that is contained here, and particularly with the answer that is given by these who were hired last at the at the ninth, the eleventh hour. Their answer is not a lame excuse for laziness. The purpose for this insertion of this conversation, this question and this response, which breaks the pattern of the previous hirings, the purpose for this insertion is to emphasize that these were men who were rejected by other employers all day long as being inferior to work for them or as being unworthy. We could therefore compare them in one sense to... uh, those who were considered unworthy by Israel, such as tax collectors and prostitutes and uh, Gentiles even, you know, the the social outcast Samaritans, and we could compare them to to them. But they, they were invited by the Lord Jesus Christ into his kingdom, weren't they? So it is these workers who were regarded as undesirable by others that the master of the vineyard gave the invitation, even you go also into the vineyard with the promise again that he would pay them whatsoever was right. Now the real jolt, the real surprise in the parable comes at the time of accounting, which is at the end of the day. At six o'clock, when the Lord of the vineyard tells his steward, remember we've talked about stewards before, he tells his steward to call forth all the laborers in order to give them their hire. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this was in total obedience to the law of God that the sun would not go down without such poor day laborers being paid their wages. If they didn't pay the wages, the commandment said that it was sin onto the employer. So they needed to be paid before the sun went down. Not only was the landowner's steward specifically instructed to pay the last laborers first. In other words, those who had been hired at 5 p.m. were to be paid first. And those hired at 6 in the morning were to be paid last, which, by the way, was not the natural way of doing things. It was totally backwards from what normally would happen would be the steward would pay the first laborers their promised denarius and they would go on their way. Then he would pay the nine o'clock in the morning laborers, etc. And the last hired would be paid last. <clears throat> and so not only was the steward instructed to pay in that situation, that unnatural situation, but he was also told to give them the exact same pay, all of them. The last workers were to receive the same pay as the first workers. Now, as I already mentioned, the Lord of the vineyard in this parable symbolizes God Almighty. And because God is God, and because his kingdom is his kingdom, and his vineyard is his vineyard, (laughs) does he not have every right to do things his way if he so desires and not man's way? You know, man's way would be to pay the first first and the last last. But he's God. And I'm not going to question what God does, are you? If he wants to pay the first last and the last first, that's his prerogative. He's God. I'm not going to argue with him. And he has his righteous reasons for doing so, and we have to just trust in his righteous reasons for why he does so. Now, this is just pure speculation on my part, but maybe these last workers were so glad that somebody came along and saw them as being worthy, even if it was just to give an hour of their work, that they were so glad to have employment at all that they produced more in their one hour than some of those other laborers had produced in more hours. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Maybe the vineyard worker paid them first because their attitude was uh, much better in in working for him. We don't know. I'm just guessing at these things. But uh, for whatever his reasons, the Lord of the vineyard paid the first last and the last first. So the 11th hour workers were called forth first. And don't you know how excited, how thrilled they must have been to receive a whole denarius for only one hour work, hour's work of worth. I mean, that was the wage of a Roman soldier. They were thrilled to death. And uh, this was extremely generous of this employer to pay them that. And the other laborers who are all standing there would be, at this point in time, I think, very happy 
that they saw that these last hour workers got a denarius because what do you think they're beginning to calculate in their minds? Oh, if they got a denarius for one hour, maybe I'll get three, maybe I'll get six, maybe I'll get nine, maybe I'll get 12. The ones who started at six in the morning, maybe I'll get 12 denaria, denarium, whatever the plural is. <laughs> so now, although the parable doesn't say so, yet we know that between verses nine and 10, doesn't say so, but we can assume that the steward paid, after he paid the 11th hour workers in the areas, he went on to pay the 9th hour workers and then the 6th hour workers and the 3rd hour workers, and that each one also received a denarius. And none of these, notice, none of those other laborers opened their mouths and complained. They did not complain about getting a denarius because, indeed, it was a most generous wage for not even a full day's work. Not only had the landowner kept his promise that he would pay them whatsoever was right, but he did exceedingly so. He paid them above, exceeding abundantly above all that they could have ever asked, thought, or hoped for. So none of them complained. However, verse 10, verse 10 tells us that when the first hired laborers were called forth to receive their wages and also received an denarius, ooh-ooh, they were not happy campers, were they? What did they do? They murmured. They murmured against the good man of the house. Verse 11, because, look at their reason, because they supposed that they should have received more. Isn't that such an accurate description of sinful human nature? Isn't it? It surely is. These men were given exactly what they themselves had readily agreed to, a wage that was more than generous, a wage that they likely would never, ever have received from any other employer. And if they had not witnessed the last workers being paid the exact same amount, they would have gone away that day very, very pleased. If they had been paid first, got the denarius that they had agreed to, they would have gone home and said to their wives, I had a blessed day today. Look how much I made. We're going to eat good tonight. They would have been happy. But, <laughs> but when they saw others who had not labored as long as them being treated equally with them, they murmured. In effect, here's what they were saying. It's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. These last laborers have only given you one hour of work while we have worked very hard all day doing the bulk of the, the most difficult, burdensome work in the heat of the day. You notice how they complain about even working through the heat of the day. You haven't been fair to us and we don't like it. We deserve more. They supposed that they deserved more. Well, in responding to this first group's accusation, the Lord of the vineyard, who obviously was there, he had his steward do the paying, but he was there because he responded and he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, paraphrase verses 13 to 15, he said to one man who obviously was the spokesman for the group, kind of like Peter, he said to one man, friend, I have not done anything wrong to you. Don't you remember that you all, you first group workers, you all agreed with me to, to work all day for a denarius, and that's exactly what I've paid you. So take what is yours and go your way. You know, be happy. <laughs> I, I will give to these last workers as I have given unto you, which is generously, very generously. It's perfectly lawful for me to do what I want with that which is mine. And then he says, are you envious? Do you have an evil eye because I am good and generous to these other workers? You see, there was absolutely no injustice in what the, uh, what the Lord of the vineyard had done here. The first group's accusation against him was totally unfounded. It was merely their self-centered natures that made them jealous of those who had worked less but had been treated equally with them. And it was covetousness that made them want more than what was already an exceptional wage. So it was their own sinful hearts. Instead of rejoicing with the men hired at the 11th hour for their good fortune, they should have been happy for those guys. Those guys probably spent a lot of their days 
idle in the marketplace because nobody wanted to hire them. I don't know, maybe they were older, maybe they were um, sickly, or you know, they were just the more, uh, the, the less desirable. Men would look at them and say they probably can't work very hard, and so they wouldn't hire them. So these other guys should have been happy for them and said, boy, you've really been blessed today. It's going to be wonderful to go back to your family and be able to provide a good meal for them tonight. But you know who they remind me of? They remind me of the elder brother of the prodigal son. Instead of going, being happy for the brothers, what do they do? They, went, they left the scene, the first day laborers left the scene angry and murmuring. <clears throat> they left with bitterness in their hearts. They weren't happy with the good man of the, ho- the good householder. Just like the older son wasn't happy with his father that he was having a party for the son who had come home. So they should have been happy, really, that they had even been hired in the first place because, you know, the landowner was under under no obligation to hire them to begin with. They should have been happy to have such a great wage. In fact, they should have told the landowner, we love working for you. This is a great wage, and any time that you ever need extra workers, we will be glad to work for you. Please hire us again. And they should have patted their co-laborers on the back and uh, said, we're so happy for you that you have really been blessed today for just one hour of work. Okay, so that was the parable. That was the easy part, telling you the parable. But the more difficult part in studying this parable is um, the interpretation of it. And the reason it's difficult is because so many men, Bible uh, scholars, have uh, given us different interpretations. So I got kind of dizzy studying them all. I hope I won't make you dizzy, but um, I'm going to present to you all the different interpretations, let you study on your own, read the lesson, do your homework, and if you come up with a different interpretation than the ones I settle on, that's fine. You, you know, because there's godly people on all different sides of this issue. But <clears throat> what exactly was the Lord trying to convey to his men here? Well, one interpretation and probably the widest one that I encountered in my reading is that this parable is all about rewards <clears throat> and that the Lord Jesus was still continuing. And he is. He's still continuing his response to Peter's question. Remember Peter's question back in Matthew 20, uh, 1927? where he had wanted to know what he, he was a spokesman, usually, what he and the other apostles would get. Since, unlike the rich young ruler, they were willing to forsake all in order to follow him. So he had asked the Lord, what shall we have therefore? We've given up all to follow you, so what will we have? And, um, and by way of this parable... Christ was telling his men to simply fulfill the work in his vineyard that he had called them to fulfill, that he had entrusted to them, and leave the distribution of rewards to him because he would do that which is right. Now, that's one interpretation that, in other words, the denarius, you could say, equals rewards, heavenly rewards. Denarius equals rewards. Now, I agree that Jesus was continuing in responding to Peter's question, but um, I have a little bit of a problem with the denarius equaling rewards. While it is true that all believers, from the first disciples of Christ down to those of us living in the time of these last days, the end of the day, I would say we're living in the end of the day, the day symbolizing the whole age, that uh, all believers should simply fulfill the work that is entrusted to us by the good householder and that we all should, of course, trust the sovereignty and the grace of God to do that which is right and good when it does come to our heavenly rewards, which will surely be exceeding abundantly above all that any of us deserve. If we get any rewards at all in heaven, it's more than we deserve. If we got what we deserve, I've got bad news for you. (laughs) It would not be good. Yet the problem that I see with the denarius equaling or symbolizing rewards is that scripture does clearly tell us that we will not all receive the same heavenly rewards for our labor. I'll give you one scripture. Your homework has more, but here's just one scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians 3, 8. It says that every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. 
That doesn't sound like every man gets the same rewards. In fact, we know some rewards will be entirely burned up like hay, wood, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble. Got that out of the wrong order. In fact, remember, Christ had just told his men of a very special, unique reward that would be theirs in the time of the regeneration when they would sit on the 12 12 thrones judging over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, we don't all get that. That's the special reward for them. So rewards are not equal. However, in this parable, all the laborers, from the first hour workers to the 11th hour workers, all of them get the same wage, don't they? They all get the same denarius. So if the denarius equals rewards, it seems to contradict scripture. Now, there's another Bible interpretation of this parable that says that the whole point of it is to emphasize, and you know, parables, they all point out that you can't take a parable, every little bit of a parable and make it symbolize this and that. And, you know, because some of them say that the evening when they're paid is uh, eternity, which wouldn't make sense because you're not going to have in eternity people who are still mumbling and grumbling and complaining, are you? So you can't stretch a parable to every little detail and say this is this and, and some try to do that and they get all out of whack and that's what makes me dizzy but anyhow some say that the whole point of this is to emphasize a right attitude and a motive in serving right motive in serving the Lord Jesus Christ and that because the first laborers hired insisted on having a contract with the landowner on the wage that they would receive for their work whereas all the other laborers simply trusted in the goodness of the landlord to landowner to pay them whatsoever was right that the first group laborers worked with the wrong motive now Warren Wearsby is one who who says all this he says that the first hour laborers were primarily interested in pay whereas all the other laborers that day were interested in their performance. They really wanted to work hard for the um, landowner. And the first group, they will say, Warren Wearsby says, was only interested in what they could get. That's all they were interested in, what they could get, you know, the pay at the end of the day, whereas all the other workers were interested in what they could give. And this was why the first group was paid last, and their murmuring proved that they had a bad attitude about their work. And they, had, they worked with the wrong motive. Now, while I agree with principles here, you know, that it is proper, our right motive should, should be to serve the Lord because we love him and because we want to perform well for him, to thank him for what he has done for us. You know, all the principles are true. Yet, I, don't, I, I would have a problem thinking that any of the other laborers that day really worked for anything other than pay, too. <laughs> We're not told anything about any of their motives. I think they all worked because they knew that they would get pay at the end of the day. I don't think any of them were really concentrating on their love for the landowner. I think that's sort of stretching it. Some say that if these men, these first-hour workers, had simply trusted in the goodness of the landowner as all the other laborers did, that they would have received far more than a denarius. But because they insisted on a contract, they didn't get more. But it's uh, very likely that, think about this, that it was not them who wanted the denarius. I believe it was the it was all of the landowner. Everything is of grace. He's the one who came seeking and saving those who could work for him. I believe he is the one who set the wage, who, who said, I'll pay you a denarius. And they readily agreed. There is no word about a contract. There is nothing that they signed on a dotted line. The Greek word for agreed, when they agreed to that, was a ready agreement. Oh, that's too good to be true. They readily agreed. And, um, and, uh, and they, they too, had to trust the landowner's word, didn't they? He said he'd pay him a denarius. They trusted in his word, and they went out to the uh, vineyard to work. And the word agreed in the Greek means that it was a mutual, harmonious agreement. So, now, even though there are certainly very true principles, as I said, that can be taught from either one of these first two interpretations, that 
the denarius equals rewards, or that the whole parable, the gist of it, is about having the right attitude, you know, that we should not serve the Lord simply because we want to receive an exceptional reward or um, that we should beware of danger of pride in our Christian service. And uh, all these principles are true, that we should beware of an overconfidence in what we suppose we should get when it comes to rewards that God, God will give. Um, because those who are first in their own eyes may very well end up last, and that we should remember that we are all unprofitable servants. Do you remember that parable? We didn't get to discuss it because we ran out of time that day. What else is new? But it was at the end of Luke chapter 17, the parable of the unprofitable servant, that really we all get more than we deserve, and we're all just doing our reasonable service to be living sacrifices for him. The unprofitable servant was just doing that which was his duty to do. And that we should all also beware of the danger of watching other workers and measuring ourselves against others and comparing ourselves. Shouldn't we? I mean, we shouldn't do that. Peter had a problem. Well, the apostles had a problem with that. We've already discussed that. But I was thinking about Peter's last words to the Lord. When the resurrected Lord returned to him and said, you know, Peter, do you love me? Well, after they went through that conversation, do you remember that the Lord told Peter the method he would die, how he would die? He said, you know, when you were young, you went where you wanted to. But when you're old, you will be um, taken where you don't want to be taken. And basically he was telling him he would be crucified, which he was. But... uh, what did Peter do after hearing that? First thing he did was turn to John said, what about him? You know, we shouldn't be worrying about each other, comparing ourselves. I wonder what her rewards are going to be compared to mine, and I got to shine brighter than her. Ah, leave that to the Lord. You know, just serve him out of love. All these, all these are, are good principles and truths that we glean from this parable. Yet, I believe that there are other interpretations that actually fit the parable better than these. Now, we have to remember again that the wage in this parable for all workers was the same, regardless of the hours of work that the men put in, regardless of the time of day that they began their work, regardless of their attitude toward their work, which we know nothing about, regardless of their productivity level of their work. As I said, who knows? Maybe the 11th hour workers, as I said, were so glad to get work that they produced. They had as many baskets full of grapes as maybe the, even some of the first hour workers. I don't know. But regardless, um, they all received the same wage. Notice, too, that even after those first hour laborers murmured and complained, the landowner didn't take their pay from them. I'm glad for that. Because I see this denarius as as representing salvation, which is equal for all men. And I am so glad that even after I get saved and I murmur and I complain about this and that, that he doesn't take that salvation away from me. He didn't let, you know, they still got the denarius. Everyone who worked for the Lord of the vineyard received the same pay. And it was a pay not based on their worthiness. And it was a pay not based on their work. It was a pay based entirely on the goodness and the generosity and the grace of the Lord of the vineyard. And this leads us to the interpretation, as I just said, that says that the wage of the parable, the denarius, symbolizes salvation. Denarius equals salvation and the equality of salvation. Tax collectors and prostitutes and social outcasts and Samaritans and Jews and Gentiles and Pharisees and men born blind and women at the well all have the same exact salvation as Peter and James and John and the Apostle Paul. Every believer is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Right? Absolutely. Even though the apostles were the very first to be called out of the marketplace of the world by the landowner to work in his vineyard, yet those apostles had no reason to be big-headed. Even after hearing about the special kingdom reward that would be theirs, 
It was really a responsibility that would be theirs in the time of the regeneration, one they should take very seriously. But they shouldn't be big-headed even after receiving that because their salvation and their rewards, everything, was in no way deserved or earned. It was due entirely to the grace of the Lord of the vineyard. You see, no matter which interpretation of this parable you, you take, everyone has to agree, and they all do, that the primary focus, the primary truth seen throughout the parable is the sovereign grace of God. You know how many times he went into the marketplace to hire laborers? Count them. Six o'clock, three o'clock, 12 o'clock. Well, did I say that right? Six o'clock, nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock. How many times did he go into the marketplace? Five times. And what is the number five in the scripture? Symbolic of grace. It's all about grace. The coming of God into this world is all about grace. He didn't have to leave the bliss of heaven to come to this marketplace at all. At all, did he? It was only his grace that sent him here. He didn't need us. No, he did not need this trouble that we have been for him. It's all of grace. His call to salvation is all of grace. His call of service for him is all of grace. And any rewards that he may give are all of grace. And what are the rewards for anyway? Just so that we have something to give back to him, to show him how much we love him and how thankful we are for what he has done for us. So no one, not even the apostles with a uniquely given promise to rule the tribes of Israel should attach any great importance to their own service or to their sacrifice for Christ. As I said before, Romans 12, 1, it's just our reasonable service. If you're not serving him, you're being unreasonable. <laughs> it's just our reasonable service. For all of us are unworthy of salvation and of his goodness and of his grace. <clears throat> now, I admit that the equality of salvation confounds the pride of human nature. You know, it leaves the self-righteous with no room to boast. The Pharisees certainly didn't like the doctrine of the equality of salvation. It's a, a leveling and it's a humbling doctrine because it puts all men on the same level, first or last, or all the same level. Which, as in the case of the first called Jews... In accepting the latter called Gentiles was a problem that they murmured about. And as in the case of the first hired laborers in the vineyard, when seeing the equal pay given to them as to the latter hour laborers was a problem. And this has given rise to much murmuring over the, the years. Nonetheless, it is true that the righteousness in which Timothy, you know, Timothy, young Timothy, was a godly man from his youth on, wasn't he? But the righteousness in which Timothy will stand one day on the day of accounting is exactly the same as that of the penitent thief, who we could say was an 11th hour laborer, right? The, the thief who was dying next to Christ and came into the kingdom at that last hour. It's all, bo both men were saved by the grace of God alone. And both will all owe all to Christ throughout all of eternity. Now, in interpreting the parable this way, there's one thing we have to be very careful about, and, and that is to make sure we understand that the parable is in no way teaching that salvation is something that can be earned. You might say, well, the, you know, they had to work in order to get the, the denarius. Um, <clears throat> because if that was the case, it would overthrow the clear teaching of Scripture, which is that salvation is by faith through grace alone. Nothing, it cannot be earned. Notice that the Lord of the vineyard, in every case, made his promise of pay before sending any of the laborers into his vineyard. And they simply had to trust in his promise to pay them either the denarius or whatsoever was right. And um, they needed to, to believe in his promise, trust him at his word, and then they willingly went to work for him. And, of course, he kept his promise, didn't he? 
he kept his promise to them. But every one of them had to step out in faith first, trusting his word, and then they worked for him. And he kept his word. Just like you and I have been promised salvation, haven't we? And we're working for him, trusting in his word, that he's going to keep his word, that we are indeed saved. Not that we will be saved. As soon as you are saved, you are saved. Now, every one of the laborers received a denarius, although not one of them deserved it. It was indeed, as I said, and I can't stress it enough, it wasn't a penny. It was a very generous wage. The men's work had no relationship to what they were paid. The pay was a gift of bounty that was given on the scale of grace and not at the rate of merit. If we all got what we deserved, it would not be good. Because if we got what we deserved, what are the wages of sin? Death. Eternal separation from God. And other than that, even if, even if we got salvation and got what we deserved after salvation, we would all lose our salvation, wouldn't we? If we could, we would, but we can't because Christ died for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and that's another subject. But anyway, this parable, so the parable has a focus on, on grace. And the grace is really most shown to us in those who were hired in the 11th hour. Those who were regarded by all the other employers or potential employers as not being worth hiring. They said, no man hath hired us. You see, only in the realm of grace is the equal treatment of all workers possible. And it is precisely the last group, the least seemingly worthy to be hired, who present for us the most conspicuous example of the grace of the kingdom of God. Where do we see the grace of God more displayed? In young Timothy or in the penitent thief? The penitent thief. You see the grace of God more displayed in him sitting down to eat with sinners than you do in him calling the righteous. And... That's just, you know, this is sort of just another um, a variation of the gospel message when the Lord Jesus said, I have not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <clears throat> so what are some of the significant biblical principles that we gleaned from this parable? They're in your notes and you can review them as you read them, but here they are quickly. And there's more than this, but number one, God sovereignly initiates and accomplishes salvation. He came to, he's the one who came to the marketplace looking for laborers. He does the seeking. He does the saving. And whether he sought us out early in life, how many of you came to the Lord when you were just a child? Raise your hand. <clears throat> okay, how many of you came to the Lord in your mid-years? Raise your hand. How many of you have come to the Lord in your later years? You did? Oh, that's not later years? 30? <laughs> Whoa, we're all in trouble. <laughs> You're really in trouble. <laughs> who? Well, you're not a child. Yesterday, the, the oldest woman who had come to the Lord, well, not the oldest, but she came to the Lord, the oldest, was 58. Has anybody beat that? That you came to the Lord later than 58? Yeah, you were in your 30s. That's young. Believe me, that's young. <laughs> Very close, 55. So whether you came to the Lord early in life and, and have had an opportunity to serve him for years and years and years, or whether you came to him later in life. My husband was 38. That's rather later. Um, it, it, the, all praise is due to him. The good thing is just to be hired, isn't it? <laughs> and remember that it is never too late as the penitent thief <clears throat> tells us. But don't presume upon that. I read one, I think it was Bishop Ryle said, um, the penitent thief was given to us so that no man would despair, but only one penitent thief was given to us that none should presume. You know how many people will presume, oh, I can get saved later on in life and they put it off but you you cannot presume on God because we do not today is the day of salvation today is the acceptable time don't presume upon God but isn't it good to know that it's never too late to serve him for he has work for all ages and you can redeem the years the locusts have stolen from you you can and he never turns away anyone who is willing to be hired because there's always room in his vineyard 
He's, you know, he's about an urgent work. And, and the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. So he's always looking for more laborers. Secondly, God continues to call men into his kingdom. He will continue to do so right up to the 11th hour. That's good, because I believe we're living in the 11th hour. And those in the tribulation will really be, they'll be in the 11th and a half hour. <laughs> and he'll be, still be looking in, uh, for, for laborers. Third, God always gives what he has promised. Always. He always keeps his word. And he will always give us exceeding abundantly above all that we deserve. Fourth, because God is God, he can do whatever he pleases with what is his. None of us has any right whatsoever to question what God does with what is his. If he saves a person at five years of age and they have 60, 70, 80 years to serve him, isn't that great? If he saves a person like my grandmother on her deathbed, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Yes, it's absolutely, I mean, and, and we're just, we're just, all the praise therefore goes to him, doesn't it? All the praise goes to him. He gets all the glory. The spirit of envy, you know, when we start comparing ourselves to one another, that's so foolish. Like the apostles, you know, they, they learned that eventually. But the spirit of envy stands in striking contrast to the reality of grace. Now, last time you have to put your thinking cap, I'm going to end with this. One final point to mention with regard to this parable deals with the relationship of the Jews and the Gentiles. <clears throat> now, the apostles, you know, were all Jewish. They were all Jewish, and they had been taught all of their lives to see themselves as superior to Gentiles. That was just ingrained in their teaching and in their culture. In fact, they um, had a great ignorance with regard to God's purposes for the salvation of Gentiles, even up until the book of Acts. I'm talking about the apostles. They didn't get all this straight in their minds until the book of Acts, um, when finally this ignorance of Gentiles being brought into the kingdom along with Jews was finally resolved. Now, of course, as we've seen on more than one occasion, it really, you know, it, it kind of upset the, the apostles and they couldn't quite understand why the Lord would, would call in sinners and, and Samaritans and Gentiles. But they went along with it because they loved him and they believed in him. But who did it really provoke? The religious rulers of Israel really got uptight whenever um, they heard Jesus say that Gentiles would be fellow heirs with them in the kingdom. Remember back in Luke 13:30, the Lord had really upset their apple cart when he told them that there would be those who were last which would be first and there were first which would be last. And they knew, he was speaking to the Jews, they knew in that context that he was talking about the Gentiles who were last would be first because he had just said that there would be those who would come from the north and the south and the east and the west which is in relationship to Israel, they knew he was speaking of Gentiles that would be the first, Gentiles would be the first to sit down in the kingdom of God while many, he said, from the seed of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would not even be allowed into the kingdom. They would be cast out of the kingdom. They would be last. That really upset the Jewish uh, religious rulers. And what did they do about it? murmur yeah and sought to kill him murmur you see now here i want you to look at the very last part of verse 16 matthew 20 the very last part although the jews as a people the jews as a people as a nation had been specially called out of the marketplace of the world by god to labor in his vineyard the whole people had been called, yet not many of them responded to the gospel of salvation. Many were called, but few were chosen. And one of the main reasons that they murmured at the Lord Jesus was because they could not understand how he could call lowly, unworthy people, such as publicans and prostitutes and Samaritans and Gentiles and handicapped people and other, you know, Lepers and uh, um, other outcasts to labor in his vineyard for the same pay that he was offering to them. And he did offer the Jews 
the same pay, eternal life. But they could not, they could not understand that. They saw themselves as first in their own eyes. They did not understand what Christ was teaching in this parable. That God's grace is the great equalizer that not only can remove sin, but that makes all who believe on his son equally acceptable to him. They didn't get it. Sad, isn't it? But a lot of lot of meaning to that parable, and I probably didn't even scratch the surface. I think there's even more interpretations in your book, so make sure you... It's a lot of homework this week. Sorry about that. Starting out the new year, as I said, having to put your thinking caps on. <laughs> or let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that each of us in this room here have heard your call to salvation. Oh, Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be none that would leave here this morning without having responded with an overwhelming yes to, the, to your call to be a laborer in your vineyard. And that everyone here has also heard and responded yes to your call to service. And then, Father, may we serve in love and steadfast faithfulness in proportion to the opportunity of time that you have given to us so that we might be your choice servants, servants who rejoice when we behold your grace and your mercy upon others and servants who diligently attend to the work needed to perform in the field of this world, and servants who strive to win others to a saving knowledge of Christ, regardless of their age or, or whatever their, their background might be or um, anything about them, that we would just be rejoicing along with the angels when each one is brought into the field to labor alongside of us. Father, thank you for this much-needed reminder of your grace, the great equalizer of mankind. May we ever remember that, you, that all we are and all we have and all we ever hope to be or receive is entirely by way of your wonderful, sovereign grace for which we so humbly give you your rightful praise and honor in Christ's name. Amen.